J. Gresham Machen was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's the author of a book that I've recommended before called Christianity and Liberalism, amongst many other works. He died on January 1st, 1937. I want to read to you his eulogy. This was delivered by another pastor named Maitland Alexander. On Tuesday of last week, Dr. Machen sat in my office and told me his hopes and his plans concerning that theological institution, which he himself founded, Westminster Theological Seminary. And then I had a telegram from the hospital in Bismarck saying he was very ill, followed up by another bulletin, and then the information that he had passed away. I said to myself, a prince has fallen in Israel. What Dr. J. Gresham Machen's death will mean to the thousands of Bible-believing Christians throughout the world is hard to tell. I do not hesitate to say that he was the world's greatest New Testament scholar. And those who attempted to answer him were thrown back like waves that beat against an eternal rock. He was the greatest champion of the Reformed faith in the world. And by the Reformed faith, I will put into words that you will understand and I will understand better than that theological phrase. He was the world's greatest champion of the old-fashioned evangelical religion. He believed in the eternal purposes of God. He believed that God came down to earth to save the world. He believed in the bodily resurrection of the believer. He believed in the inerrant Bible. And he stood for those things through thick and thin, through the storms of persecution, and amid great efforts that were made to stop him. He says, I believe Dr. Machen was also a man, as he would have to be, of intense convictions and wonderful courage. I remember after he'd had a great setback in his convictions, I met him and I expected to find him sunk, as it were, as I was myself. And instead, I found him bubbling over with triumph. I said to him, I don't see how you can feel this way. Well, he said, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. And that was the underlying philosophy of his life. Then, Dr. Machen was a humble Christian. I do not know any man that I have ever known that was as truly humble before his God as he was. He was a man of principle. Of course, he was a man of intense Bible study. He was a man who gave his heart wholly and unreservedly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Machen was the object of personal attacks by the men of power, even in his own church, which issue finally, in the end, refused him communion in the Presbyterian church. It's one of the few things that I have ever felt made me wish I was not a Presbyterian. I'm ashamed of the church. And now that Dr. Machen is dead, I am wondering, will his blood be the seed of another church? Or will his blood water the dying elements of evangelical faith so that it will grow into a great and glorious honor of Christ? I believe it will. I believe the result of his death will be almost greater than the results of his life. And if I were standing today as they laid him to rest, I would say, servant of God, well done. Rest from thy great employ. And I would say perhaps to those who are listening that there are men who are greater in their death than they were in their life. And I would say, here is a man who is the greatest of all in his life and in his death generated a power that will almost pull down the adversaries of the Son of God and exalt him in his cross high above all things, that men will return to the uttermost ends of the earth to be sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. 
Now that is a eulogy. Maybe a little overstated in places. It may be a little bit hyperbolic in a couple of spots, but what I really want you to hear today are Machen's last words, his own last words. His last recorded or or written words were actually sent to a friend in a telegram as he was preaching in a church in, in Bismarck, North Dakota. This is what he said. These are his last recorded words. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Jesus Christ was totally submissive to his Father when he condescended to the earth in the incarnation. And he totally and completely obeyed the law of God. That's how he was able to be our perfect sacrifice. Because he he was without spot or blemish or any such thing. And yet there are many who believe that the only purpose for Christ's birth was his death. The only reason Jesus was born was so that he could die, but that's not quite accurate. Because without the active obedience of Christ, without his perfect obedience and keeping of the law throughout his life, as Machen says, we have no hope. And so what we are really saying here is that Jesus came to fulfill the law for us. That he came to demonstrate through the law that his righteousness might be imputed to us, cloaked onto us. He came as, as Hebrews begins, long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did you catch that? All of these truths including the fact that as hebrews says there jesus is the exact radiant is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature all of this point us to the truth that jesus was fully obedient to god and even further that he and the father are one that they are one and so there are a few times in his ministry when jesus would say if you had known me you would have known the father also In fact, in John chapter 8, he uses those words, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. He uses those words to rebuke the Pharisees for not believing in him. He even says that that while they claim to hold tightly to God's law, the Pharisees claim to hold tightly to God's law. And so he says in John 8 verse 17, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. They refused to believe in him. They refused to believe in the one who sent him. And on top of that, they also refused to believe in the law that they claimed to hold so tightly to. 
And so Jesus' conclusion for them is this, you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So turn with me to John chapter 14, if you're not there already. Because Jesus uses this phrase again, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But this time, he uses it with his own disciples, still as a rebuke, but bringing about a different outcome. So let's read John 14. I'm going to read 1 through 14. Uh, and then we really are going to focus on um, 8 through 14, or really kind of 7 through 14. So John, 1, or John 14, 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, Jesus says right here that if we ask anything in his name, you will do it. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, transform our hearts, transform our minds, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. This statement is its the heart of the gospel. With this statement, Jesus both condemns and he gives what we could probably call corrective assurance. He says both, you will die in your sin, where I am going, you cannot come, and he says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The first he says to the Pharisees who rejected him, and the second he said to his disciples as he had to correct some of their misunderstandings about him. And so as he says this here in chapter 14 to the 11, this statement, it really serves both as a rebuke and at the same time an assurance of grace. Remember, he has just told them that they know the way to where he is going. In fact, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They know Jesus, even if they don't know that they know Jesus. Nevertheless, they know him. But this is a rebuke. And it's a rebuke in that, in that he is telling them that they're, they're careless and even, even dull-minded. 
for not understanding the true identity of Jesus Christ, even though they have been his constant companions, even though they have been even his disciples. Philip himself, and we'll talk about him in a moment, Philip said this when he first began following Jesus as his disciple. Way back in the first chapter, John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, Philip says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip believed from the very beginning that they had found the Messiah. Philip believed that they had found the Christ. He believed that when Moses wrote this promise of God down on paper, that he was looking ahead to Jesus. So here's the promise. Philip believed this promise was about Jesus. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Philip believed that. He also believed that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus when he wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Philip believed that. He believed that they had found him of whom Moses in the law and also all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They knew him, but they didn't know him as they should have known him. They knew him to be the Christ, but they didn't carry that knowledge to the conclusion that Scripture brings us to, namely that the Father and the Son are one. As Christians, we are monotheists, right? We believe in one God, and we believe that there is only one true God. We are also, we could say, Trinitarian monotheists. We believe in one God in three persons. Now, Jesus is specifically teaching his disciples here in these verses about his relationship with the Father. And and very soon, even actually if you look ahead in the next few verses, beginning in verse 15, he's going to explain to them the, the Holy Spirit, and he refers to him there as another helper, a paraclete. We'll get there in the coming weeks. But I want to define for you as simply as possible, and, and it's not going to be simple, I'm just going to warn you, but as simply as possible, what we believe about our, as Christians, what we believe about our Trinitarian God. I'm just going to read to you an historic confession. This is the Second London Baptist Confession. It was published in 1689. It's Article 2, Paragraph 3. It says this, referring to God, This divine and infinite being, God, consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God. 
who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on Him. See, it's simple. It's not simple. I want to acknowledge that. It isn't a simple definition. But there simply is no earthly analogy that is sufficient to describe the relationship of the Godhead, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The parts of an egg don't do it. Water, steam, and ice, that doesn't do it. Nothing is sufficient because nothing is like our God. But listen to that last sentence of of this confession again. It says this, This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. So here in today's passage in John chapter 14, Jesus is specifically saying that understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son is at least part of, he's about to explain the Spirit as well, but it's at least part of the foundation of our fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on Him. He says simply, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So let me ask you this, as you think about the ways that Jesus uses this statement, both with the Pharisees back in chapter 8, and now with his disciples, the 11 here in chapter 14, which is harder to understand? Is it harder to understand Jesus saying this to the Pharisees? Saying this to his enemies? Or saying this to his disciples? Saying this to his friends? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Is it harder to understand the willful ignorance of those who are enemies of the light? Those who reject Jesus as the Christ? Or is it harder to understand the mistakes and misbelief of those who are truly children of the light? Those who genuinely believe in him? In his commentary, Matthew Henry, he's been dead for a long time. He says something like this. This isn't a direct quote, but he says something along these lines. He said, if they had known Christ aright, they would have known that his kingdom is spiritual and not of this world, that he came down from heaven and therefore must return to heaven. And then they would know the Father also. And then he must go to the Father in the glory of a throne and a kingdom that is not like this world. Remember, they have just heard, it's been a couple of chapters now, but they have just heard On Palm Sunday, just a few days earlier, the proclamation, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King. They were expecting Jesus to ascend to the throne. They couldn't wait for him to overthrow the Roman government, even up to this point. They believed that he was the Savior for the people of Israel. And he is. But he's so much more than that. Verse 7 is, it's not only a rebuke to them, but it's also an assurance that, that he assures his disciples, an assurance of grace, that he is assuring these men that they, they do know him. And from this point forward, they will understand who Jesus is and they will understand who God is. They're about to understand these things in the next couple of days. In the next month and a half, they will come to a pretty good understanding of who this Jesus is. As they see him be arrested, go to the cross, die, and 
and three days later rise again and ascend past through the heavens where he sits at God's right hand. They will begin to understand his throne is not what we expected. He is a savior, but man, we had such a small vision of him. Christ is teaching his disciples here that they're not, they're not actually as ignorant as they seem to be, as their questions lead us to believe that maybe they are. And certainly they're not as ignorant as the Pharisees, because as John will explain many years later, like little children, these men know the Father. They're having trouble putting all of this together, that, they, that to truly know the Father is to truly know Jesus and vice versa. But this is what John will, he will tenderly explain this in his first letter. So in 1 John chapter 2, we read this. He writes this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John is writing that letter many years after this event because, of, because at one time, he and the other disciples, the eleven, Philip as their spokesman here, they didn't understand. But they knew the Father because they knew the Son. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They've had trouble putting all of this together, the oneness of the Father and the Son. And so it's in this context in which Philip makes his request here in verse 8. Pick it up in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Well, that request, show us the Father and it is enough for us, it's on the right track, but it's still off base. See, on the one hand, Philip here, as the spokesman for the twelve, Philip is, is connecting the work of Christ with the work of the Father. He believes that Jesus has the ability to do this, to show us the Father. Yet on the other hand, he's also disconnected the Father from the person and work of Christ. It seems as though what Philip, and, and by extension the rest of the disciples, it seems as though, as though what they're asking for is a theophany. A physical manifestation of God. They want to see God. Moses asked for the same thing. In Exodus chapter 33 verse 18 he said simply, Please show me your glory. But Philip didn't stop there. Because he said, Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. For Philip, in this moment, seeing Jesus wasn't enough for him. Christ wasn't sufficient. Philip had been with Jesus from the beginning. It was Philip who had said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But here, Christ isn't sufficient for him. And so this statement brings a rebuke from Jesus. Or, or actually, I should put it this way. Jesus does for Philip here 
what Paul calls all preachers to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's what he does. Preach the word, Paul says. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Jesus right here is our perfect model for this. I don't want to go too far afield, but I want to define those three terms so that you can see it in this passage. Okay, To reprove is to refute error or misconduct with a careful biblical argument. And it usually has to do with the mind. It's meant to help the person understand. To rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To rebuke is very similar to that. It brings that erring person to repentance or calls them to repentance. It brings the person under the conviction of guilt and it's more related to the heart than the mind. They're both related, but reprove deals with the mind and careful biblical argument. Rebuke related to that deals with the heart. To exhort is to admonish with encouragement. So John MacArthur says it this way. He says, after having reproved and rebuked disobedient believers under his care, the faithful preacher is then to come alongside them in love and encourage them to spiritual change. And Jesus does all of this at once right here as the good shepherd. He centers his teaching around these three words or these three concepts that you can see in this passage. Believe, he mentions this several times, greater things... And then the simple word, ask. Believe, greater things, and ask. So let's start with believe. Let me read verses 9 to 11 again. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus begins addressing Philip's uh, request or his question here, his statement to show uh, us the Father and it is enough for us. He begins to address this by offering, I guess we could say, a pretty straightforward rebuke there in verse 9. But it's a rebuke that is tinged actually with a little bit of sadness on Jesus' part. We would expect his enemies to be ignorant of him. But Philip has been with him for so long. Chapter 1. He's been with him from the beginning. You can sense that Jesus is sad that, that Philip still doesn't understand. And so he asks these kind of two probing and and, and even rebuking questions. He says, we've been together so long and you still don't know me? And then he says, essentially, how can you ask me that? But the rebuke or these rebuking questions, they frame a statement that really is a good summary of Jesus' entire ministry. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is his reproof for them. He has spoken about this before. Just back in John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45, he had said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. 
John even, in his entire writing of this gospel, as he compiles this later, he sums up Jesus' ministry in his own introduction by saying in, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John's entire gospel, the gospel according to John, is, is written with this concept in view, that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, as we're going to soon see here, uh, that they are one. And Philip here is expressing an, an insufficient understanding of Christ. The Father, if we could just see Him. And Jesus gives him this correction. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, your difficulty in understanding all of this will soon be over. You will soon understand, you will soon believe that Jesus and the Father are one. It's going to become a little bit more clear later as Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, just ask yourself, is he talking about his disciples or is he talking about the Pharisees? unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 to 6 he says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the problem is, is that unbelievers cannot see the Father through the Son because Satan has blinded their minds. But the gospel will soon shine and bring knowledge to them. Remember, he has already said to them, You know the way to where I am going. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, Matthew Henry on this statement here, really referring to verses 10 and 11 of, of uh, John 14, he says this, in the light of Christ's doctrine or teaching, they saw God as the Father of lights. In His signs and wonders, they saw God as the God of power. The holiness of God shone in the spotless purity of Christ's life, His active obedience. And they could see the grace of God and all the acts of grace that Christ did. Jesus continues His reproof by asking another question. It's rhetorical. And it's a theological question, and it also probes at their hearts. Look again at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's saying to them, what do you really believe? Jesus is acknowledging here, do you not believe? He's acknowledging that his disciples know, they believe that he is united to the Father and that the Father and the Son are one, that they dwell in one another so thoroughly and that Jesus is so dependent on the Father's will that their character is indistinguishable. That's not to say that the Son is the Father, far from it. Rather, that the Son always lives to do the works of the Father. In fact, this is another reason to, to believe, as he says here, 
believe because of the compelling authority of His Word. Because of His obedience to the Father and His being united with Him in the Godhead. When Jesus speaks, it is God who is acting in and through the Son. Those of us who have believed in Jesus know this, even if we don't understand all of it. And I would venture to say we don't understand all of this, right? But we know this. Since it's by God's power in the word of Christ that we've come to new life and saving faith to begin with. And the way that we press on in faith is by listening to Christ's voice. In fact, the word says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's by believing and knowing that the word of Christ is the truth of God. But Philip wanted more. He wanted a sign. And so Jesus pointed to the signs that he had already done. Again, in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This double testimony, he mentions his word in verse 10 and the works in verse 11. They leave us without excuse if we refuse to believe, but it's also enough for us to believe that Christ is sufficient. And this believe that Jesus calls us to doesn't stop there. It actually moves on to greater works. So verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, sometimes when we hear this, people automatically um, assume that it means that his disciples, or maybe even that all Christians, will perform miracles. But there's a couple of problems here. First, we do acknowledge, and the book of Acts teaches us very clearly, that the eleven, or at least those who are uh, prominent, the eleven perform miracles, and Paul also later in the book. And these are genuine miracles. They are great miracles. They are great signs and wonders. But nowhere in the book of Acts in particular, nowhere are these miracles described as being greater than the ones Jesus performed. So there was no disciple that fed 5,001. There was no disciple who did even more amazing things than raising Lazarus from the dead. They did Jesus' works, but they didn't do greater things than that. If anything, their miracles were shadows of the miracles that Jesus had performed. They were reflections of Jesus' miracles. And then kind of the second problem with this, if this is a promise for all believers and not simply to apostles, then we certainly have a problem because we don't perform miracles today. Now, we do believe that God sometimes miraculously answers our prayers. We believe, for example, that God can and does heal people. In fact, I fully believe that God graciously and miraculously gave Linda Harford five more years of life because people prayed for her for the glory of God. I believe that. I believe that there are others in this church as well. I think of Diana. That God has given years of life to because people, his people, have prayed but we believe that he did it, not us. It's not by anything that we've done. 
Yet verse 12 says explicitly this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the, excuse me, do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Some would say that if we would just believe fervently enough, then we would be able to perform these greater works. If you believe enough, if you believe hard enough, God, you will be able to raise the dead. If you believe enough, you'll be able to calm stormy, stormy seas. You'll be able to this miracle, that miracle. But he simply says, whoever believes in me. He, do, he doesn't quantify that. He just says, whoever believes in me. Whoever. All Christians. The greater works that Jesus is talking about has to be understood in light of the, of the reason why we are able to do them. He says, because I am going to the Father. You're going to be able to do these works because I am going to the Father. Jesus is giving a hint. He's foreshadowing the Great Commission here. He's foreshadowing Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. This is about regeneration. This is about new life. He's going to say in Acts chapter 6, or excuse me, John chapter 16, he's going to say, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, listen to the work that he will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The greater works than these that we will do is preach the gospel. The greater works than these that we will do is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, knowing that he has promised to be with us. That's the Great Commission. There's no greater work than to see a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins being made alive together with Christ. There is no greater work than that. We need to conclude. We're going to, a little bit early today, but we're going to, I'm feeling generous. I want to finish with a quote from the best thing that ever came out of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. He said this, Sayings like these are full of deep mystery. Speaking of this entire passage, sayings like these are full of deep mystery. We have no eyes to see their meaning fully, no line to fathom it, no language to express it, no mind to take it in. We must be content to believe when we cannot explain and to admire and revere when we cannot interpret. Let it suffice us to know and to hold that the Father is God and the Son is God, and yet they are one in essence through two distinct persons, ineffably one and yet ineffably distinct. These are high things, and we cannot attain to a full comprehension of them. Let us, however, take comfort in the simple truth that Christ is very God of very God, equal with the Father in all things and one with him. 
He who loved us and shed his blood for us on the cross and bids us trust him for pardon is no mere man like ourselves. He is God overall, blessed forever, and able to save to the uttermost the chief of sinners. Though our sins be as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. He that casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend, a friend who is one with the Father and very God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that we do not understand all of these things. But we believe that Jesus is the way. We believe that we have seen Jesus, we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We believe that you have sent your Son to dwell with us to tabernacle with us, to make his place with us. We believe that the Son has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he has not left us alone, that you have not left us alone, but that you have sent another helper to be the seal of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, until we stand in glory and see you face to face. So Lord, through salvation... We know that that he who casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend, a friend who is one with the Father and very God. Lord, we don't understand these things, and so we, we pray, help us to understand. Help us to worship that our God is not like anything. He is above all things. And that he sent his Son because he loved us. Father, we thank you and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.